tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined by Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at Ben Lewis SN590. You can follow Mike at McIntyre Tennis, and you can follow us at Matchpoint Can. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Well, Mike, another great week of tennis in the books. We had one Canadian reach the finals of the ABN AMRO in Rotterdam, and another take out the top seed. Uh, but for me, this is a special episode as we get to welcome really one of the premier analysts in today's sports on the show yeah we've got brad gilbert uh, on the program with us and no matter when you became a tennis fan uh, you're going to have memories of brad gilbert whether it was from his playing career which he got absolutely the most out of uh, what he brought to the court every event uh, or whether it was from his coaching career uh, you know steering the likes of andre agassi andy murray andy roddick uh, to uh, career highs and and great peak moments in their uh, illustrious tennis careers or even now, if you're just watching uh, tennis at the Slams and you see Brad Gilbert on TV, uh, usually courtside with his analysis. And so very big guest for us to get on the show and had a wonderful time listening. I'm kind of jealous. I have, to, I have to admit that you got to do this one, that I couldn't be there, but I had a great time listening to it. And I know uh, the rest of our listeners are going to enjoy this one, too. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, for me, Brad Gilbert just has one of the the keen eyes uh, on the sport. I, I think he really does have an expert analysis in terms of how he breaks down the game and, and what he sees from the very best players. And uh, I know he has experience uh, as well coaching players who are, are not as strong. So uh, really is a great mind in tennis. And uh, without f- further ado, here is my conversation with ESPN analyst and former player and coach Brad Gilbert. Very thrilled to welcome our guest for this week. He's one of the top analysts in our sport today. He's a former world number four who won 20 career titles and an elite level coach of players like Andre Agassi, Andy Roddick, and Andy Murray, just to name a few. He's also a best-selling author of one of the must-read books on tennis uh, titled Winning Ugly. Uh, Brad Gilbert, thanks so much for joining us on Matchpoint Canada this week. Uh, thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Uh, before I guess we get to your analysis of the sport, I actually wanted to begin with your playing career. And I, I think sometimes people forget how impressive it was. 20 career titles, as I mentioned, and uh, you began your pro career in 1982. And you're in a tough era. Um, if you were to sum up, I guess, your style of play, how would you describe it? Oof. Uh, you know... I would say I was a counterpuncher um, who, who just battled. And, uh, you, you know, part of your era, the Edbergs, McEnroe's, Beckers, then later Sampras and Agassi. Uh, when you look back at those players and you see our, our top players today, what do you think the biggest difference is in, in today's game compared to, to back then? I think the, the evolution of movement that you know, has just continued to get to another level in both the men's and women's. And I call it like easy power too. you know, the, the strings have definitely helped, but I, I definitely call it like the easy power that you're seeing the players generate. But I, I'm most blown away by, you know, the movement and the defending ability, you know, uh, of guys, you know, and ladies, especially it's like like somebody like a Djokovic, to to see somebody's movement and efficiency at movement like that is just 
incredible. And and probably also the biggest evolution I would say is the players on both the men's and the women's that are playing um, so much um, better in age group, like in the mid thirties. I mean, used to be you turned thirty, you know, shoof, you were on the back nine, big time. And now to see so many players, you know, that are doing well, you know, in their mid-30s and a lot of players that all of a sudden will achieve their career high rankings at 30 and do things in their early 30s that just didn't seem possible. And that's just, you know, the pushing of the sport and the training and the technology. So that's really impressed me. Yeah, and speaking of which, uh, I mean, we we saw her uh, on the court this week making her return. How uh, how surprised were you to see uh, Kim Kleister's ability to to make a comeback in the game at, at age 36, and she played a competitive match against uh, uh, Garbina Muguruza? You know, I mean, I, I watched this morning. I mean, I was like, uh oh, you know, it was a bit of a struggle at the start, down six two three zero, but then all of a sudden. You know, she turned things around, and she was right there to win the second set. I think if she had won that second set, you know, she lost a tough breaker. You know, I think she might have won that match. And, you know, when you begin a comeback, you know, you want it to be there in the first week. But, you know, obviously you're going to be at the mercy of the draw. And and I think if she plays, you know, 6, 10, 12 events, you know, hopefully she gets some decent draws. But, but I, I think she's going to... You know, when, you know, you, you know. I don't know what her goals are and everything, but I, but you can definitely see that you know she's going to get better probably on a weekly basis. Yeah, and just her ability to to strike the yeah, ball. Yeah, but but then again, when you're unranked and you, you you're at the mercy of the draw, you know, you wish okay, she can you know can we give her a little better draw this week or next week? But it doesn't work that way. Uh, we'll we'll move on to our, our Canadians because we are uh, a Canadian podcast here and uh, we have to talk about our contingent. We'll we'll start on the men's side. Uh, 19-year-old Felix Ojeali-Assim just making his fourth career ATP final in Rotterdam before losing to uh, Gael Monfils. What do you like most about uh, his game and, and where do you think he maybe fits into the landscape of the tour right now? Well, well first of all, getting get that final was much needed. He'd been struggling a bit, to, you know, to start the year. Um, and, the, you know, like the last three, four months. Um, I mean, first and foremost, the thing that jumps off, the, you know, is maturity for his age. And his movement for his size at like 6'4", 195 is out of sight. So I, I think those are, you know, tremendous things to build on. And then it's just, you know, probably at a young age, you know, which is the most difficult thing is just being consistent. You know, week in and week out. You, you know that that you know really you, you know is the, is the evolution when you get older and and you're making the push to be ranked even much higher. But I I think he has a you know huge upside, and I think that the, the shot that probably can go up the most based on his size and athleticism is serve. And uh, it looked like his... I think that he can serve, you know, a lot bigger and a lot more consistent, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think the one shot that he struggled a little bit with, you know, when I've seen him and done a few of his matches, has been the serve. You know, it, it, the ball toss sometimes can be, you know, all over the place, you know. And it's once, you know, you feel like he figures that out at his size, like, 
you know, there's no reason why he shouldn't be serving as big as the missile roundage, if not even bigger. And, uh, and, and, when, and when that happens over the next few years, I think that his game will really spike up. Yeah, and I think there was uh, some chance for optimism this past week. Uh, 16 aces against Carreno Busta in the semifinals is, is a really good sign. It looks like his, his serve is trending in that direction. Yeah, and, and if you do look at his serve, you know, that's something that he doesn't do that much. Mm-hmm. And it's something that he, you know, like I said, for his size and and how easy he, he can produce stuff that, that he starts doing that on a consistent basis, I think the results will, will jump up a lot more. Just on a, a personal level for, for Rotterdam, uh, you look back at your career in uh, 1990, you won a title there. What, what are your memories of that tournament? <laughs> I, it's funny when people ask me, it's like I almost don't even remember it. Like, <laughs> you know, the older I get, the better I used to be. But I remember somebody just sent me a picture that, damn, I still had a lot of hair then when I was 30, <laughs> you know. I think I started coaching Andre and then Derotic. I lost my hair, but but uh, that, that immediately it's like shucks, man. You know, I didn't. I didn't. I should have gone tighter with my hair sooner. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, unless I, you know, it's funny as I used to remember every single match for the longest time, but now as you get older, you seem to start to forget, and it's it, it's easy to go back and look at the results. But I think, you know, you kind of remember some hard losses, mm-hmm. you know, more as you get older and you kind of forget. But without looking at the ATP, to, you know, like the you know, website or whatever to remember some of the matches, I remember I, I felt like early in that tournament I, I escaped a tough match. You know, I was in trouble and I got through something early. And, that, and I think that was like my only – difficult match of the week and then I just rolled it was like one of those I I had a good draw you know things opened up for me and I and I can't remember who it was you know but if I looked at the website I was like oh it would refresh me but I definitely remember you know being down you know first or second round like a 4-1 in the third I tough it out win five in the third and then I went on to just roll the tournament I, I've heard it's amazing uh, how often that can happen. Like yeah. you, you, you sneak something out early, and then you you kind of like, okay, you know, you, you relax because you you got through something, and maybe it's like you're, you're a little lucky to still be there, and then you play relaxed the rest of the way. And I, I I definitely kind of remember that that happening. Well, that that kind of gives me a memory of uh, a Roger Federer and uh, you, you look at that lone French Open title and he he actually had a bit of an escape uh, against Tommy Haas earlier in that tournament and uh, then he was sort of on his way after that do you think there's an element of sort of like playing with house money so to speak when when you do pull that off um, I, I'm a million percent you know obviously there's there's different ways to look at it I remember you know when I was coaching Andre early uh, and when he was struggling first, you know, a few months, I was coaching him, and he lost a bunch of close matches. And and I told him that, like, all it will take is you just got to win one close match. And he's like, what is it with you with these close matches? I'd rather just win easier. And then he won a, a match, like, second round of Canada, like maybe 11-9 in the breaker in the third in, in 94 in Toronto. And I believe, you know, he saved like two or three match points. And he was really pissed afterwards that, and, you know, about having, you know, this match go like that. And I was like, you know what, this is a great thing. It gives you an opportunity to play tomorrow 
and potentially get better tomorrow. And then he said normally that was the type of match that he would be so mad about that he would talk himself into losing the next one because, you know, and I said that's exactly the attitude that you don't need. What the attitude you need is, is like, ah, now I can really get better tomorrow and use this opportunity. And that's exactly what happened. He ended up winning winning the tournament. He won that tournament, and then like three weeks late, three four weeks later, he won the Open. And, and I said it was that match that you know he lost about three four close ones since I've been coaching him. You he wins one like that, and then you can use it to your advantage, you know. And it's how you process it. And I, and I do think sometimes those are like the most important. And and I call it too when you're on a win streak when you're winning. Like, those are the matches, like, when you start winning matches like that, I call you almost start to forget to lose. Mm-hmm. So those are huge to win. And, uh, yeah, it, it kind of makes me look at, at your book and, and the philosophy, in a way, uh, of winning ugly. I, I know we have a lot of tennis players who listen to this podcast, uh, myself included, love to play. And, you know, we, we sometimes have those, those moments in matches. You get uh, rattled mentally or you get tight in the crucial moment. What was your approach just to try and stay calm in those crucial, critical moments of, of a tight match? I, I used to just, you know, listen, everybody gets nervous. Yeah. And I just did a clinic, you know, down in Naples where there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of three, five, four O's. And I was just telling this one guy that he was, you know, anytime he would get in a little bit of trouble, he's trying to pull the trigger and win the point. And I said, at four O level, it's not a few winners that wins the match. It's the unforced errors that loses it every time. And if you're in a one in five position and you're trying to pull a you know a trigger, you, you know you, you, there's a reason why you're at a level. And it, if you you know try to go for winners, you're going to miss. And I was telling the guy, listen, play steady. I said that's what I would try to do. You know, wouldn't try to pull the trigger from a tough position. And the you know, the getting nervous, I, I, say, I like to say about tennis is like talking on the telephone. Hmm. You know, it's something you do, you got to relax. I would, you know, hum a Tom Petty song as much as I could. And then I just, I wouldn't, I would call it the one thing I would say, going out on the court, I just wouldn't stress it. You know, and sometimes you can make yourself like, it, it, like so uptight thinking about, what you're supposed to do or how it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Everybody, you know, seems like they expand a lot of energy on a result before it even happens. And so I used to always say, you know what, I'm not going to worry or visualize what's going to happen. I'm just going to go out there and see what happens. Right. And then figure out, I call it, like, I, I see this as a coach and as a player. I say, sometimes you guys just start moving the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> Are are there any players maybe on the the tour today, men's or women's side, who who you think have uh, have that notion of of winning ugly down down better than others? I, I know for the men's side, one one name that comes to mind for uh, me is Medvedev. Well, I, and listen, I wish I could win, you know, or, you know, like a you know win pretty, but you know, you you work with what you got. Yeah, I uh, I mean, you know, he doesn't win ugly, but he competes like phenomenally. My favorite maybe player ever to watch compete is is Nadal. And simply because if he's up 5-0 or he's down 5-0, you, you know, you, you know the game poker? Yep. You, you know, like Texas Hold'em? Mm-hmm. 
he's not turning around his two two seven offsuit. He's holding a two seven offsuit like it's aces, yep. and that's the ultimate. So I, I love seeing him. Guy can be down four zero five zero, and he's not showing you that he's going to pieces mentally. And then all of a sudden he wins a game, and you know he, he's right back in there. So I love his attitude of not knowing the score. I, I remember. Um, the 2006 French final, I believe it was, so I'm getting old now, but I, that he was down 5-0 to Fed in that first set. And it was disaster start. And then all of a sudden, like, he wins a game, little, you know, little fist pump, starts, and then boom, turns around early in the second. And it was such a positive, amazing attitude to see. And then he wasn't, you know, rattled by this bad start and he and he and it just shows you that you you know a lot of times when players are in that situation they show you that they're frustrated uh just speaking more on the the big three of course uh they've been holding all the major titles as we know 56 in total i sometimes get asked this uh what do you think makes Djokovic nadal federer better than the rest uh i'd I'd love your take is it more of a mental edge i mean you touched on it with nadal or or is there something more specific that that's making them better well i mean there's well a few things one you know, obviously, beyond anything else, is their consistency and longevity that they've been able to continue to do what they've been doing forever, and and they're being pushed by each other, which is a you know a great thing. They you know, it's like okay, you're still doing it, I'm still doing it. So I think that's helped them a lot, and I also think that all of them are amazing at being able like all of a sudden you know if something happens in a match, they're able to to regroup, reset. You know, a lot of times, you know, they're able to, you know, like what happened in that match against Djokovic when he was down and down early in the fourth, he wasn't feeling well against team in that final. But then somehow he, he was able to reach a gear and then be able to turn that around. And that all three of them have that ability to be able to turn around matches like when all of a sudden 99.9% of the guys on tour lose. They seem to just always be able to just be able to, like, reach back to another, like, gear that, like, okay, it was like, here was a struggle, and then, okay, let's let's put the pedal to the metal, and boom. And so they, they, they all three of them have that amazing ability. Uh, and do you think another player is is ready to steal a slam from them in, in 2020? We've seen Dominic team edge closer and closer. You know, it's, it's funny as I felt like, at the start of 219, I said I put the over-under on the big three at three-and-a-half titles, and I was, I said I'd be shocked if it wasn't four. That's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And coming into 220, I like, okay, I was thinking things might be a little bit different. I'll say I'll put the, you know, maybe I put it the, the total at three. But then I, I sat down in Australia early in the tournament. I felt like if Keane, Medvedev, or Tsitsipas, or some other young guy won Australia, I felt like that might be the impetus that maybe we might see two or three of the slams won in 2020 by a non-big three. But I said if one of them does win the Australian uh, the Open in 2020, 
I said, uh-oh, watch out. Maybe, you know, that streak, you know, if Rafa maybe wins it at, at Paris or Joker, maybe we get to Wimbledon. So we could easily get to the Open, and we're at 15. You know, so I, I think Joker winning that title, mm-hmm. you know, would not be shocked if he won three slams in 2020. I'll ask you about one more uh male Canadian and then we'll uh, just briefly touch on the women's side uh, Denis Shapovalov we've we've seen peaks and valleys uh, he he finished 2019 so well getting his first title and now it seems like he's hit a bit of a roadblock of late not playing well at the Australian Open say if you were if you were Dennis's coach what do you what do you think would you say is the biggest thing he has to improve I, I you know that like the term in basketball streak shooter Mm-hmm. You know, for some reason, Dennis reminds me a lot of that. He he gets to the semis of Miami. He plays unbelievable last year, and then I think he went something like two and ten through to Winston Salem before he brought on Usney. A horrible stretch. Then finishes the year from there super good, and then now he's back to like what three and five, three and six on the year. Yeah. So. It, it's it's quite unusual. I I did his match in Australia, where he lost um, that match first round, and, and the guy did play really well. But the one thing that I feel like from from Dennis is that he just played. You know, for I mean, he's listed at six one. I'm not sure he's anywhere near that big. But he does have amazing firepower off the serve in the ground for a guy his size. I mean, he has. M- I mean, maximum power everywhere. But I wish that he, that he could just downshift a little bit, you know, especially off the ground strokes, that he doesn't have to go through every single person. And, you know, when he's playing the top guys, I think he can put some pressure on them. But I think it's the matches against Vucevic. It's the matches against guys 60, 80, 90 that he doesn't have to play red line. He, he could learn to kind of pull back a little bit. And he could put a few more returns in play. So I think if he can find that balance of a little bit of defense to go with his offense, I think that he, he's got huge upside. Our fingers are crossed to, to see more of that no, uh, I, this yeah, season. I, mean, yeah. I like your two guys a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, but, and, and they got, you know, if you add up their ages, they're almost fed. <laughs> you know, but he, he, I think that he's, you know, I think both of them at some point, I don't know when, and there's a really good chance that they might do it at the same time. We'll be top five. Uh, Bianca Andreescu, we, we've already seen that from her. And, uh, of course, she won the U.S. Open last year, yet to play in 2020. But certainly the excitement around here is building for her to make her return. Do you think it'll take her a little bit of time to get the form back? Or do you think she's the type of player that just hits the ground well, running? For, for, well, first of all, uh, you know, I predicted her at the Open last year to win it. You know, and and her talent is unbelievable. Uh, I mean, you could just see it at Indian Wells. Um, and and then she comes back. She hasn't played for five months. And then, she, you know, basically one wins Canada. Um, I think if you go back to almost 15 years old, the number one thing that she's battled more than her opponents is herself is just being healthy. Mm-hmm. And I said in Australia... Had she been in Australia, I, I, I w- just didn't see how she wouldn't have won it. You know, but you can't win if you ain't there. <laughs> so the biggest obstacle for her is going to be to be healthy. And 
so far it's not like over the last year. I mean, she you know she barely lost any matches, but it it was what a shoulder and elbow. Now this is a knee, so it's a different injury. So it, that is the con- the most concerning thing moving forward because I think she can have a great career. She can win five to ten slams, but biggest thing is she's just got to be able to stay healthy. Yeah, certainly. She reminds me that she played like. I, I say this a lot of her. She kind of reminds me of like a mini Rafa. Yeah. The way she plays, her style, that she has the best forehand in the women's game by far. The most explosive. She can play spin. She has a lot of variety. She can defend. Uh, and she has huge, huge power for somebody that's maybe 5'6". So, uh, yeah, I, it, uh, I think that, that she, you know, had she not been hurt, you know, even in the fall and now I think she'd be number one in the world already. So that's the most, you know, pressing question is just being healthy. And I think if she is healthy, I think the wins will come. And uh, I'm I'm hopeful for a, a full clay court season from her as well. I think her game certainly can translate yeah, she to that. The entire service. clay court season and and the way she plays with her style, mm-hmm. it, it, you feel like her game should really translate well to the clay. Other players on the women's side, uh, Sophia Cannon, of course, capturing her first Grand Slam title. But uh, is the field as open as we all normally say, or are there a few names standing out to you more than others? Okay, BB aside. Yeah. (laughs) If she was playing, like I said, if she was playing Australia, I predicted her to win, and I think she is the best player by far. I think she is the best player in the women's game. Wow. You take her out of the mix. I said 12 to 15 women could win Australia. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have put Kennan in the mix. Uh, but she competes unbelievable, and she took advantage of a great opportunity. She beat one seeded player, and, and the, the, the match that, you know, that was probably everything was the, the Coco match because that was probably the toughest mentally match to play down a set. And... You know, she gets through that match after dropping that first set, you know, and then just goes on. And it's just, she's she's fun to watch, man. She wins, she's mad, she spikes the ball down all over time, and she plays with an edge. Mm-hmm. And we've had three straight women's slam winners that are pretty small. Halep, you know, uh, BB, and Kennan. They're small in height. So it's, it's pretty amazing, three straight. But I, I think there's a really good chance... That I, w- I would predict now for the women's based upon, you know, BB, you know, we're not sure about the health and where that the women's are pro- most likely four slams, four different winners, okay. I would think, because there just seems like, you know, we, we talk about, you know, you hope something happens different in the men's of the big three, but I just feel like in the women's right now, sometimes it's about who's going to get hot is going to win the tournament. You know, there's a lot closerness between 12, 15, 18 players to one than there are in the men's. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly the case. Uh, last question, Brad. Uh, we know it's an Olympic year, Tokyo 2020. Uh, 1988 back in Seoul. Um, I, I'd love to know your memories of winning a bronze medal there. And what, what do you remember from that experience? And, and how much do you think the top players really key in and focus on an Olympic year as well? I'd like to think for me that, that the highlight of my playing career was just a chance to play in the Olympics. Um, when I played in, in 88, you know, as a kid, you know, 
the Olympics was a big deal. It was a massive deal. You know, you, you, you know, it wasn't like we had cable sports and all these things. And tennis wasn't a part of the Olympics, so I never thought that I would ever get to play the Olympics. And one of the most special things that you can do is walking in the stadium with your fellow athletes from different sports. And the thing that maybe is the most amazing thing for me, the entire tournament, you don't hear your name called once. It's not game Gilbert or it's not game, you know, whoever the person is, it's game your country. Mm-hmm. And game, you know, the country for the person you're playing against. And you get to wear your country's color. So it's it's a huge deal. It's a massive deal. Um, so it, it was the high, you know, for me. Um, and if I could ever change any result in my career, you know, it's like if you could just ask, you know, <laughs> I, I call, I have the big penny that I would change that to a gold. And I, I didn't have that much aspirations. I got in the semis. All of a sudden, I'm playing my teammate, and Edberg had lost just before me, you know, and so it was like I had Mayotte to play mature, and I think I got ahead of myself thinking, shucks, I should win this gold, and then I choked to my teammate. So <laughs> if I could change one result, that would be it. And then I remember that's what Andre asked me, like, in 96 about the Olympics. So I said, if that's the, that's the one result, I, you know, and I said, this is the one result that you can win it, you, you want to win it. So I think as a player, it's it's as big as any event to win. You know, if you can have the gold, you know, for your country, it, it, it's massive. Brad, uh... it, just, it, it just now, though, you know, that Olympics was, I think it was after the Open. But w- what's tricky for these players now is, like, you got French, you know, then you got Wimbledon. And then immediately you go to Japan for the Olympics, and then boom, a few weeks later, the Open. So it's going to be a condensed, like, six, eight weeks for for a lot of these players. Yeah, and it's going to be a a very challenging schedule, and uh, we're fitting in our our Rogers Cup here in Toronto just uh, post uh, the Olympics. So uh, Yeah, that goes early. See, everything goes early. Um, And it's just a, a tough physical eight weeks for a lot of these players that, you know, post some results. So I I wouldn't be shocked if you saw, you know, like we saw Monica Puig win four years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, out of nowhere. So I wouldn't be surprised if we had somebody on either side make a deep run because of how condensed the schedule is. Of course. Uh, Brad, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for, for joining uh, Matchpoint Canada today. And I, I know we can always follow you along uh, on Twitter at BG Tennis Nation. Thanks uh, so much for your time. Have a great afternoon. There you have it, Brad Gilbert, who you can follow on Twitter at BG Tennis Nation. And uh, Mike, I really tried my best to sort of cover everything because Brad really has done it all, starting with uh, the playing career, getting to to world number four and uh, the illustrious coaching career. And now, of course, he's he's a top analyst and nothing really but praise for a lot of our Canadian players. Yeah, and you can see why he's so good at the role that he does because, I mean, there was no script involved here. There were no questions shared in advance. He just hit the ground running and uh, did a great job analyzing his own career as a battling counterpuncher <laughs> and then talking about the evolution that the game has experienced over the years, his, um, you know, his real marvel at how the defensive aspect of the game has come along since he played 
And then he did a fantastic job at looking through the Canadian crew and, and heaping praise on many of them, and, and rightly so. And I don't know about you, but it's always kind of nice when we hear someone who isn't Canadian uh, say so many positive things about the young men and women that we have coming along these days, because uh, it's not just a, a bias thing on our part. There really is a lot of reason to get excited about what we have here. Yeah, certainly. He, he's clearly optimistic about the pros- prospects here, I believe. Uh, if I'm recalling correctly, he said Felix Ojeel, Yassim, Denis Shapovalov both feel like future top five players, if not better, to him. And a lot of praise for Felix Ojeel, Yassim, and his, his movement and athleticism on the court. And uh, that was really on display uh, this past week in, in Rotterdam. I was impressed at, uh, at Felix, uh, you know, making the fourth final of such a young career already at only the age of 19. Not worried one bit that he hasn't, unfortunately, captured the title in any of those four events because that's certainly coming. But just the fact that he's doing it, he's doing it on multiple surfaces. And as Brad Gilbert mentioned, we're seeing a real maturity from him on the court. Um, hello, Denis Shapovalov, maybe something that you can take from that. Uh, and we'll talk about Denis later. But, uh, yeah, Brad mentioned some great things about his movement, his maturity. I was kind of curious when uh, Brad mentioned he thinks that Felix can eventually perhaps have a serve as big as Milos's. And, uh, my goodness, could you imagine if Felix was ever serving like that? I almost feel like that would be an unbeatable tennis player (laughs) in some ways. Um, I know he's got height. I just don't know if he can get that same kind of pop that uh, Raonic gets out of his big missile. No, maybe not. Maybe not to that degree, but uh, you look at his build now at uh, he's listed as six four one ninety five, and you wonder he could even fill out some more though. He is very, very strong and athletic uh, even today at age 19. And I, I pointed out to Brad, I, I thought, Felix was really making significant strides this past week with his serve. You look at his semifinal win against Pablo Carreno Busta, 16 aces, which is a really high number in just a two-set match. That's really impressive to me. He also hammered in 10 aces in his quarterfinal against uh, Alias uh, Bedene. So uh, the first serve for him was really clicking right up until the final. And, and of course, the final, he was playing a great top 10 player in, in Gal Mofis, who feels like he's suddenly playing some of the best tennis of his career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you you got to tell me, Ben, from that interview with Brad Gilmer, Gilbert, and it was a pretty lengthy one because, boy, he liked to talk, and we were happy about that, too. It's always great when you've got a guest that wants to elaborate and get into things. What, what was the highlight of the interview for you uh, chatting with him? That's a good question. I, I was fascinated by his take uh, on the big three and, you know, his philosophy on winning ugly. It, it's not just the term of of finding ways to to win without beautiful tennis that that's more into the 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 competition level so stressing Nadal's ability to compete well when he's down 5-0 or up 5-0 the the minutia of the game and then also translating how that can help for a player who's maybe at a 4.0 level which you referenced and I'm sure some of our listeners are, are tennis players themselves and I hope just some of the basic tips they they sound so simple when Brad says that but if you take those philosophies to the tennis court or maybe uh, in your life, they, they can be helpful. I, I really uh, like to sort of add on to that the insight he provided from his time working with Andre Agassi, a player that I really liked when I was younger. And for me, it was, um, you know, what he highlighted about Andre's mental evolution and the mental work on that side of the game that he did with him about how Andre used to get mad and upset, even if he'd win a match, but if his opponent held match points at some point against him and how he'd sort of carry that negativity forward with them. And 
Brad taught him, as he mentioned, how to use that in a positive way and learn from it. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he can take much more from a tough win than from an easy win. So I think that's something that separates, you know, good players from great players is how they can turn something that maybe wasn't positive during a match into something that can lead them to, to great heights, like for Andre it did with his first U.S. Open victory. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of players today could benefit from a coach like that as well. Uh, he's clearly not coaching at the moment, but I can think of several players, uh, some Canadians included, that might benefit from some wise words uh, like those. Yeah, and, and Gilbert touched on uh, the game of Denis Shapovalov, for example, how uh, sometimes he, he really just has to hone it in and probably dial it back just a little bit when you're playing guys in the 60, 70, 80, 90 range of the rankings and sort of use your game and be a little steadier and trust that your game is strong enough to take it to those guys. It's, it's only when you have to go all out uh, against the Nadals and Djokovic's where you have to redline, as he says, uh, and I'm sure that's something that Dennis and his coach Michael Usney will be working on but uh, unfortunately for him uh, his slump continuing uh, losing in Rotterdam this past week he's now three and six on the season but uh, we'll we'll move over to the positive side uh, not only Felix but Vashik Pospisil uh, entering back inside the top 100 this week and just a, a mammoth upset of the top seed Danil Medvedev. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the U.S. Open where he took out a really talented Russian in the opening round there as well that we didn't expect him to do. And despite his strong play to close out 2019 and the way he's carried a lot of that forward in 2020, still didn't think he'd have it in him to take out uh, Daniil Medvedev. Yet he did. Um, Unfortunately, couldn't build upon it. But he's definitely displaying the kind of play that's getting him. Well, now he's back into the top 100. And if he continues like this, uh, you know, I would say top 50 is certainly within range this season, um, which would give him some definitely uh, more favorable draws and allow him to hopefully sink his teeth into into tournaments and and progress even further. This to me is potentially, which seems odd, you know, in his late 20s, uh, that that he's playing perhaps the best tennis we've ever seen from Bashik. Yeah, uh, that's that's certainly, I suppose, debatable when we look back at some of some of his results. Obviously, the Grand Slam quarterfinal uh, at Wimbledon in 2015 is is one of the mega highlights in terms of Grand Slam singles level. He, he's won big-time doubles titles, including a Grand Slam there. But uh, singles-wise, just over a, a solid stretch of time now for it feels like, I guess, four months, uh, we've just seen really, really solid tennis from Vashuk Pospisil, who to me is already kind of playing like a top 40, top 30 player, despite the ranking being number 98 right now. Uh, but I think if he can just continue to build upon this, he didn't play any matches last year until Wimbledon. So everything uh, up to then is gravy, and it's just going to see his ranking go up. And that consistency that you mentioned over the past four months or so is is really the difference to me, which is making me feel like this is the best we've seen from, from Vashik. He's had good moments, even some great moments over his career, but he's never turned that into any sort of sustained longevity of of high-level play. Even after the Wimbledon quarterfinals, I don't believe that spurred him on to a stronger hardcourt summer. Right. Um, But but here we are, and we're seeing him, not every tournament, I mean, how many players can do that, but we're seeing more often than not, he's having good runs, and he's beating a heck of a lot of uh, top-level players. So that, I think, really bodes well. That uh, and, and why can't you peak or, or approach your peak in your late 20s? As Brad Gilbert mentioned, there's tons of guys that are into their 30s playing some of the best tennis 
of their careers as well. Yeah, absolutely. 29 is just, it's not an old age in this sport anymore, which is which is a great thing to me. And uh, so impressive that Vasha could make that quick turnaround as well, playing the Open Sud de France the previous week and making the final there. And I really honestly penciled him in for a loss against Daniil Medvedev saying like, he just came off a long week of tennis, just made the final, and now he has to play the number one seed who, you know, had the most incredible summer we'd seen in some time. Medvedev making six finals and U.S. Open finalist. Uh, I would have given him all the excuses to lose that match and instead he wins it in straight sets. So it really is incredibly impressive. And and how about Gael Monfils? I think we should retract any offer of playing the Rogers Cup this year because he's now <laughs> beaten uh, Canadians in back-to-back finals and you know, the funny thing about Mofis, I was just looking through some of his stats today. Mm-hmm. This is the first time in his career that he's won two tournaments in a year, and it's only February. Yeah, that's uh, that's unbelievable. And the first time he's ever won back-to-back titles. And uh, he said something that really floored me uh, this past week in Rotterdam, that his goals, he believes he can make a push and try for top five in the world and he says he still has aspirations to win a grand slam now i'm not sure that's going to happen uh but i i love the fact that he has that self-belief i think it's making a huge difference good for him he's 33 years old and uh, still has time Uh, his body's taken a beating over the years because of the theatrics and the, the incredibly dramatic style that he's played always an entertaining guy to watch and someone that i would have thought you know, would have captured a slam earlier in his career because of so much talent and promise as a junior and coming up the ranks. And yet he just couldn't sort of uh, deliver that consistent type of play or, or pick the moments where it's time to dial it back. Um, in some ways, I'm, I'm feeling a little Dennis Shapovalov in there because Dennis has such a flashy game as well and needs to find times when it's just okay to keep the rally going and wait out the opponent at certain times. You don't always have to go for that big leaping one hand backhand, for mm-hmm. example, but uh, absolutely wonderful to hear that Mofis is, is really into it. And uh, why wouldn't you be your number nine in the world? And you've just won back to back tournaments. And like I said, despite having won tournaments in previous years, I, I was shocked. He'd never won more than one in a calendar year before. Yeah, that's uh, that's very surprising to me as well. He's made a ton of finals, not that many titles, but uh, excellent results for him uh, in this swing in France. And number nine and closing in on Matteo Berrettini, likely to be number eight soon. Uh, we'll just quickly touch on some action this week in Marseille at the Open 13. Felix Ocieli, Asim Denis Shapovalov, Vashik Pospisil are all there. And I'll point out over in Delray Beach, Canadian Milos Raonic, uh, won his first match and he is actually now the highest ranked player in that draw because Nick Kyrgios pulled out. Uh, he was the previously the top C, but Raonic now the high, highest ranked player left in Delray beach. And he made the final there a few years ago. Uh, this really seems like a nice opportunity for, for the big serving Canadian to get on a nice run. Hey, look, if Milos is feeling as healthy as he had has in six or seven years, as he mentioned recently, and still feeling good right now, then he is absolutely the favorite to capture this one. And he should capture this one. As you look through the draw, you know, Milos, again, to me, is top 15 material when healthy. And we've got to see that. Uh, I didn't catch his match, his loss to Sun Wu Kwan in three sets at the New York Open, which was surprising to say the least. But uh, this is an event uh, where Milos should uh, certainly have a deep run and uh, and continue to, you know, pump the tires, get the confidence going. 
as we approach, uh, you know, two events where he's historically played so well, Indian Wells and, and Miami, uh, later on in, in March. So hopefully Milos can, uh, can capture some magic here and, and keep it going. We'd just love to see the guy healthy this year. And if he stays healthy, I see no reason why he can't give us a third option in the, uh, in the top 20, which really makes me feel like we're getting greedy here in Canada. But uh, <laughs> But they're they're playing well, those three. Yeah, yeah, they are. Definitely a prime opportunity for Milos here. So we'll be tracking that one closely. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're on Instagram and under Matchpoint Canada. Uh, follow us along there as well. Over to the women's side. And we'll start with a Bianca Andreescu update uh, because we know she had pulled out of the Dubai Tennis Championships this week. So she's not there. And she is also now pulled out of Doha, the Qatar Total Open next week uh so unfortunately still haven't seen her compete yet in 2020 and fingers crossed that it can happen at indian wells if not possibly before but i just want to cycle back to brad gilbert's comments on bianca andreescu uh, which kind of floored me just outright saying he feels like she is the best player in the women's game when she's playing well he was really pumping her tires back in the summer heading into the u.s open where he picked her to win uh, I mean, I don't think that was too big of a stretch. You and I both had Bianca in our top five contenders, certainly after what we saw from her up close at the Rogers Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he heaped on the praise for her game. Uh, he said she reminded him a bit of a of a Rafa Nadal in some way. And uh, he's, he's huge on her forehand, the variety that we've spoken to uh, at length over the past year in her game, the spins, the slices, the uh, drop shots and, and whatnot that we see from her. I thought it was really interesting that Brad said, he feels she would have won the Australian Open if she had been there. Yeah, well, I guess part of that is maybe how the draw unfolded. And he mentioned uh, the way things unfolded, for example, for Sophia Kennan. Uh, she avoided a lot of the top-seeded players. Uh, I don't think she had to play a seeded player until the semifinals when she finally faced Ash Barty. But we saw those early upsets. We saw players like Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, Svitolina, who's been struggling, Karolina Pliskova, all these top players, Madison Keys going out early that, uh, yeah, I guess when you kind of think of it uh, in terms of opportunities missed definitely Bianca Andreescu had she been playing her top level game certainly would have had an opportunity to make a deep run there and I just want to see that game in action again sometime soon yeah, I mean there have been a lot of tweets from her supporters lately about how they're they're missing you know the the hairband clip on the arm and the uh, the style of her play and the the fight that she shows and just all the many things that make Bianca such a wonderful, watchable, uh, up-and-coming star. But she's been off the tour now for three months and counting, and the fact that she's pulling out of not just the next tournament, but a couple of tournaments, to me, is really concerning. Um, so will we see her back in time for an Indian Wells defense or not? I mean, I feel like that is becoming more and more unlikely as we progress. And uh, is it going to be like a flip of last year? Last year she skipped the clay court season. This year maybe she'll miss the initial hard court season. It's an unfortunate thing that we even have to sort of surmise about um, because she's so young and so talented, but her body just doesn't seem to be cooperating with her. Yeah, and Brad mentioned uh, that that had been the case really for her through juniors when she was 15 moving on. We we even saw that before she made her giant run in 2019. What was going on in 2018? She was dealing with all these injuries to the back. So she has been an injury-prone player. Uh, we certainly don't want her to rush 
back on the court. She has to be 100% when she makes her comeback. I'm actually still hopeful uh, and uh, I'm still relatively confident that she does play Indian Wells just because I got the sense from Heidi Eltebach, uh, the Fed Cup coach, that Bianca was training at an 80 to 85% level uh, when they were down in Switzerland, that you have three weeks from now. Uh, as long as there hasn't been an additional setback that we're not hearing about, I actually think she can make it back for Indian Wells. And maybe if they play it safe, just play one of the two of the Sunshine Double. Then you get to transition to clay where that's a lot easier on the body. Yeah, well, we can only hope, fingers crossed, our best go out to her and her camp. And uh, if we find anything out, we will certainly report it here on Matchpoint Canada for you. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but we do have a major uh, women's tournament happening now in Dubai. I'll point out that uh, the Australian Open champion, uh, Sophia Cannon, out already to Elena Ribakina, uh, who is actually another young star to keep your eye on. She won Hobart to begin the year, and she made two separate finals as well. Actually, Shenzhen beginning her year, she made the final there, and she was in the finals of St. Petersburg just last week, so that's another young rising star. Uh, a couple other upsets. Well, Alina Svitolina already out. She lost 6-2, 6-1 to Jennifer Brady. So when you look at this uh, partnership of Svitolina and Gal Mofis, they were trending the right way for so long. Mofis playing his best tennis, and Svitolina has completely hit a roadblock for some reason. Yeah, 4-4 four and four so far in 2020 after a great finish last year at the WTA Tour Finals. Um, where she fell in the in the final match to Ashley Barty, but uh, the inconsistency in her game, the the mental focus, perhaps because uh, she's got the game and she should have the confidence with some major major wins in her career to uh, to get things on the right track here, but it just hasn't seemed to happen. Um, who did she add to her coaching staff? Was that uh, Bagdadis? I want to say at the end of 2019 for the start of 2020. Ooh, I. Um, um... It could be a case of the dad brain here because my kids do rob <laughs> yes, me of my right, sleep right. and my it, memory. It was uh, it was Marcos Bagdadis actually in uh, December that that partnership happened. So I I mean we'd have to check if that's still happening or not, but it doesn't seem to be yielding any immediate results to start the calendar year. Unfortunately for for Alina. No, uh, and I'll just quickly read her quote in Dubai after this loss to Jennifer Brady. She said, I'm trying to find out, find what's going on. It's very tough to pick one thing. I think just everything has to come together. I have to be stronger physically, have to be in better shape. We're working hard, but something is maybe not right now. So she certainly sounds like a tennis player searching for answers, and hopefully they can come sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, by, by the way, I, just as you're mentioning Dubai, Dubai was one of the first tournaments I ever covered, which was back in 2009. And if you ever get the chance, if any tennis media are listening or, or people who want to get into cover that event if you can, because it is a fantastic tournament to go to. It's too hot during the, the mornings or midday to uh, have any matches. So you basically got your mornings and early afternoons off if you want to head to the beach or check out any of the, the crazy sites they have in Dubai. Mm -hmm. And then they treat the media really well there with access to like the VIP pool and whatnot. I, uh, I don't know why I haven't been back yet. Um, it, it is one of my favorite places to go and see tennis. Um, the, the uh, Dubai open, you'll have to, You'll have to get there at some point, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I got to pencil that one in. That sounds like a, an awesome uh, vacation. Doesn't really sound like work to me, to be honest, but that's it okay. It didn't feel like it, to be honest <laughs> with you. It didn't feel like it, but there I was, and, and Venus and Serena were both there. It was uh, it was a pretty cool, it wasn't my first tournament, but one of my first couple, and uh, 
I felt like, boy, this is uh, this is not such a bad gig whatsoever. <laughs> well, we'll wrap on the note, as you mentioned, uh, Serena Williams, because she was on Twitter just uh, the other day and tweeting about Kim Kleisters, the Belgian, saying, Kim, you inspire me. Uh, Kim Kleisters making her return at the age of 36, her second return, really, to the tour uh, and starting it off in Dubai. Pretty tough draw when you're facing the Australian Open finalist in Garbina Muguruza, who's now playing some of her best tennis. But I have to say, really positive results for Kim Kleisters uh, playing a competitive first match against Garbina Muguruza. And clearly, the, the ball-striking ability has not left her. Yeah, the first set in a bit, I think she'd admit that it wasn't really going uh, as hoped. But then in the second set, things started to click. And that's understandable after so long away from competitive tennis. I mean, her last competitive match was at the 2012 U.S. Open, which is crazy to think like seven and a half years ago since she's played. And she can come out and lose respectably, uh, you know, in a tiebreak, a close tiebreak in that second set to a player like Muguruza, who just made the Aussie Open finals. So this has got to be encouraging for Kleisters. Uh, the, the double faults will, will obviously come down with more practice mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and work on the serve. But uh, you have to admire her for wanting to come back and do this. Doesn't need to win anything else. Doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. But uh, good for her. I was looking at the top 10 of when she last played on tour. And this was kind of interesting. First of all, 10 of the top 20 back at that uh, U.S. Open in 2012 have retired from the sport already. Okay. Um, and the top 10 at the time, number one was Victoria Azarenka, mm. followed by Radwanska, Sharapova, Serena Williams, Petra Kvitova, Angie Kerber, Sam Stozer, Lee Na, Caroline Wozniacki, who recently retired, and Sarah Irani. So uh, she's outlasted now, you know, by virtue of this comeback. <laughs> Uh, many of those players, the fact that she's come back to play, some of those players could still come back and be very, very effective, I feel like, as well. Um, I'm just uh, you know, looking forward to seeing what she can do. And she's one of those very positive, uplifting people. So inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, as you said, uh, normally when, when you get some of these comebacks sometimes from players, it's from players who feel like they have more to prove. And then you look back at Kim Kleisters and her career, and she really has nothing left to prove. 41 titles uh, in singles and four grand slams. I mean, she's she's already a Hall of Fame player, but still uh, coming back, surely just for for the love of the game. And she's already come back once, and uh, and that one went pretty well, considering she won the U.S. Open no shortly after returning to the tour, then did it again a year later, so it was certainly no fluke. Um, I hope we get to see her at the Coop Rogers this summer in uh, Montreal, not just to watch her play, but also to talk with her in press, because she's one of the most obliging and friendly um, players uh, out there that I've ever spoken to. Yeah, she would be a terrific guest uh, for this podcast. Brad Gilbert was an awesome guest to have on this podcast. We thank him for joining us. You have been listening to Matchpoint Canada. Tell us what you think of the episode with Brad Gilbert. You can tweet to us at Matchpoint Can, and you can tweet to me at Ben Lewis SN590, and you can tweet to Mike at McIntyre Tennis. We will talk to you next time.